Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks for joining us again this week. You're wonderful to be back with us. All of our listeners are just so great. We thank you for your notes and emails, uh, e- even some texts. That's a don't know how you get my cell phone number, but uh, I, you've been kind enough. Nobody's uh, said anything too nasty yet. On the Farcast, of course, we cover Wall Street. Washington, and the world, and we have such great guests for you this evening. Coming up tonight, listen to this lineup. Stephanie Link is coming back with us. We know that she is a favorite of yours. Uh, You saw her on CNBC today, as a matter of fact. She's managing director uh, and head of equities research for TIAA investments. When we go to Washington, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And then for our third segment, as we consider a broad worldview, Ned Davis from Ned Davis Research. You know, I first met Ned Davis years ago when I was uh, I was one of the regular contributors for Wall Street Week. Now, for those of you who are ancient, this was a show that was filmed uh, in Owings Mills, Maryland with Louis Rukeyser, uh, back when God was still wearing short pants. Uh, it was a terrific show. It was the number one business uh, rated business show on television at the time. 1.7 million viewers. Nothing in cable or modern business TV can touch it today. Uh, it, was, it was really terrific. It was a thoughtful show. It was on Friday nights, and people flocked. Uh, to the television sets on PBS to watch Louis Rukeyser. Terrific show. Ned Davis was there. Ned Davis is going to be here tonight. He has a very interesting view on the economy. Ned and I had lunch, uh, oh, a couple of three months ago when we were down in Florida. It was so fascinating. I said, we need you on the Farcast. Remember that on the Farcast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And above all, Emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. Emotion will take you asunder every time. If you're feeling fearful or ebullient, stop and look at your data. Uh, Make an investment decision that makes sense for you. Don't think about how you feel. Think about what makes sense when it comes to your money. My first guest tonight is the Stephanie Link. Uh, She is a rock star, as you all know. You probably saw her on CNBC today. TIAA Investments, huge, huge company for all of the teachers and schools. Before that, uh, she's been doing that for a few years now, but before that, she spent seven years at the street. She was chief investment officer and co-portfolio manager, head of research uh, of the Action Alerts, uh, Jim Cramer's charitable trust, thestreet.com, Jim Cramer, uh, also from CNBC. She was 10 years at Prudential Equity Group. Now, let me tell you, I've been fortunate enough to be on television, sit on the desk next to Stephanie. If you think she looks a day over 34 years old, you're wrong. (laughs) How the hell she's ranked up all these years is just God's miracle, I'm telling you. Uh, went to Boston College of Jesuit Education. How can you bet against that? Stephanie Link, welcome back to the Farcast. That is such a kind introduction, Michael. Thank you. So fun to be back. It's great to have you. Stephanie, we saw uh, markets uh, are, are, of course, all over the place uh, over these past few weeks. The Fed will, the Fed won't, the President will, the President won't, will, he won't, he, she, what's going on. So today... Uh, the Federal Reserve, a couple of uh, comments from Jim Bullard, 
uh, who says that uh, 50 basis points is too much. One of the more dovish guys out there, but also one of the least consistent. And I've, I've, I've been on different panels. Actually, I presented the economic forecast a few years ago with Jim Bullard, President Bullard at the University of Delaware. It was a great treat and privilege. He's a very nice man, very smart. But I, I, I'm never sure which, which direction Jim's coming from. And then, of course, uh, Chairman Powell came out today and said that the Fed was insulated from short-term political pressures and should be, and that they were independent, and that they were going to uh, make sure that they uh, would avoid the damage that often arises when policy bends to short-term political interests. And guess what? Markets didn't like that at all. Tell us what you thought about all of it. It's a really confusing time. And I've said this um, just pretty much on a consistent basis for the last several years, because the volatility certainly has, we've had our, our moments. Um, and you can't, you can't get obsessed with the day-to-day. You certainly, as a long-term investor, can't trade around these kinds of things. You've got to take a long-term approach and look at the health of the underlying economy. That said, the underlying economy is clearly slowing. We grew 4.2% GDP last year at this time. We're going to be lucky if we do two, maybe 2.3% this quarter, this year. I think overall we're probably set to do about a 2% GDP for the year. Um, and with interest rates so low and jobs still pretty good, I still think we're okay. I do not see recession. We had those fear mongers talking about recession this year. No, I do not think that's the case. But we have to prepare for slower growth, even if we get trade and even if we get the Fed. I think what Bullard was saying today was prepping us even more so than what Powell tried to do at the last meeting. Basically saying, we're not going to go, we didn't go in in June, but we're going to go in July, and we we could go in September, and we're going to take it as we get the data. We're going to figure it all out at that point. I'm okay with that, Michael. I really am, because there's so many moving parts. If we do get some sort of trade deal, then the whole narrative starts to change. And so... I think you take, you take it one day at a time, but you invest for the long term. You have a balanced portfolio. You have quality companies. And oh, by the way, you know my favorite saying, if I can get the number one or number two player on sale in a downdraft in the market, I buy that all day long. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephanie Link at, from TIAA, who is uh, head of research and director uh, there, she, she, just listen to her. Just listen to her. The woman is very <laughs> wise. She's smart. And, and you know why she's so smart and wise? Because I agree with everything she just said, uh, above all. But, uh, you know, and, and the fact that she's, uh, as I say, uh, 34 years old, uh, I've, been, I've been doing this a long time. And everything that she just said for my 30-plus years, rings absolutely true. Stephanie, so when I have been, I don't think 2% is all that bad, though. I mean, if you look at where we were 10 years ago, if you look at how the economy's rebounded, and you look at where stocks have gone from below 7,000 to 27,000 on the Dow Jones Industrial Act, I mean, and then I'm just going to grow 2% from here. I can live with that. Can you live with that? I absolutely can live with that, especially if interest rates stay low. And not only are we starting to get into an easy cycle and, again, lowering rates, but global rates are very low. And global uh, global monetary policy is very, very accommodative. So if that's the case, Michael, then rates likely stay 
low for longer. And then that relationship of what else are you going to own, you want to own high-quality, dividend-growth, blue-chip stocks in that kind of an environment. And I think at like 16 and a half times forward estimates, it's, the market's not that expensive, again, given where rates are. I, 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 I agree, and that's what I've been advising uh, clients as well on a case-to-case basis. And remember, on the forecast, we're not giving investment advice. Uh, we can tell you what we've, some, some things we've told some other people, but uh, if you need investment advice, please go to your investment uh, professional or come, or come directly to uh, TIAA or over to Farr Miller in Washington. We'd be happy to help you. But don't, don't, don't get your advice off the radio or television, ladies and gentlemen, please. Uh, have somebody. People will talk to you. Experienced people will talk to you. Stephanie, I have, you know, uh, I have a theory. I've talked to – I gave a um, – uh, speech uh, at the University of Delaware. I've done this for 10 years now where I'm invited to give a speech with one of the Fed presidents. This year it was Loretta Mester, who is marvelous, by the way. I don't Have you had a chance to meet her up at CNBC? I have. She's lovely. Isn't and she brilliant. cool? Oh, she's and brilliant. brilliant. Absolutely. I, she is one of the coolest, nicest people. Uh, and at this thing, they have a um, cocktail hour and dinner and uh, I even circled back uh, perhaps um, uh, for, a, uh, for another discussion and uh, marinating a few ice cubes, as Art Cashin likes to say, even after dinner, <laughs> just because she's so cool. Um, and we talked about everything. But Loretta and a couple of other Fed governors, uh, not so much on the air, though a couple sort of intimated at the beginning of the year, that the Fed, of course, has this big portfolio that they built up over $4 trillion as they were out there aggressively buying bonds to keep rates low and throw a whole lot of liquidity into the economy to get us through the Great Recession and financial crisis. Uh, Loretta and others uh, said that they thought they would, sometime in the middle of the summer, stop the uh, automatic selling of, uh, that por- uh, of that portfolio. So what they've done is they've reversed. Instead of buying bonds, they've re- they were tightening rates and raising rates, but they were also selling this portfolio. So, Stephanie, my, I have this theory that they're not going to cut rates in July or over the summer. I think all you're going to hear them say is we are going to stop selling that portfolio down. We're going to go neutral and let it sit for a while, perhaps let it run off. Uh, at its own pace. And that's going to be, I think, the only sort of easing we're going to get. And then maybe in the fall, you might get a quarter point cut. Now, that's just Farr's uh, uh, hypothesis based on some conversations. And and frankly, I, I really hope that they would move that slowly and that deliberately. I was so glad to see what they said in their comments. I was so glad to hear what Jay Powell said today. I think they're standing up. I think they're being... T- I was getting so nervous, Stephanie, that they looked like they were going to tuck under. Were you? What do you think? I mean, am I wrong? I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I wish they'd be uh, just a tad hawkish. I, I think it's been an amazing change in the last seven months, an amazing change. Um, but I do think that we are, we have decelerated so rapidly. And again, a lot of it is because of the, the, the fiscal policies are wearing off a little bit, but also you have this global slowdown. And so I really think that they underappreciated that slowdown because you, as you said, 
the balance sheet, as well as raising rates. That's a double whammy. It is. I think if, if, they, if they don't lower in July, this market's definitely going to correct. Because you saw today that the market didn't like what Bullard had to say when, when he said no 50. No. So, I, I mean, I think they're going to do July, and then maybe they say, and we're going to sell, and we're going to see. You know, we're, we're not, this is not automatic. Now, Bullard has suggested it, they, they will do 25-25 July, September. But maybe, just maybe, they say, let's just see if especially the trade talks then progress because maybe that can stabilize things, or maybe the global central bankers and this new round of easiness starts to actually help. So we'll, 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 just, we'll just have to, I hate to say what we're just going to have to see, but it's, it's, it's crazy for the average investor to, to get obsessed with all of this. Let us yes. obsess it. We're professionals. Let us do it. But really, it's, it all comes down to if you have high-quality companies in your portfolio, you're diversified, I, across all sectors, um, you don't chase the momentum. You don't try and buy the deep value, you know, value traps. You just stay in the middle, fairway, right down the middle in terms of your portfolio. I think for the long run, you'll be just fine. I I I, I agree with you completely. I, but I worry that the tail starts wagging the dog a little bit. I mean, as soon as the Fed yeah. says that they might start raising rates, and you see rates uh, bonds rally and rates fall. I mean, you know, basically, uh, the interest rate market and the bond market is giving President uh, Trump everything that he wants. The rates are already lower. We don't need to wait on I the know. Fed. They're down. I mean, we're below 2% today. It's, it's, it's absolutely wild. Um, so I've got two more, uh, uh, two more questions. And I can't believe how quickly the time goes when I get to talk to <laughs> Stephanie Ling. Oh, my goodness. So here are the two questions. Tell us, I, I know what you've said, uh, as we should look at our core blue chip holdings. Uh, mm-hmm. I, w- I want to ask you your best advice to the individual investor as they're hearing all of these things and they're healing, hearing about trade tariffs and they're thinking about their 401ks and with a market at all time highs in here, mm-hmm. should they still keep taking deductions from their precious paychecks and making contributions to their 401k? And then finally, I'm going to ask you about a rumor I heard about you. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> Um, I will say, okay, I, you know, I think what's really important, and I learned this at a very young age, um, and I thank my father for this, but you dollar cost average, and you take a little bit of your money. Yes, sometimes you're buying at the high, but sometimes you're buying at the low. You cannot time it. I mean, as we professionals have a hard time timing things, we can time better than most, but certainly an individual investor, you just take a little bit of money every day. You put every month, you put a little away, and again, you're going to some days and some months and some years, you're going to buy low, and it's going to feel horrible, by the way. Right. But you're going to do it because then you're going to see some days you're going to be buying high, and you know what? You average in, and it'll be, it'll be just fine. But the environment is okay. We're not headed into a recession. Balance is everything. A little bit of cyclicals. A little bit of defense. You heard Barbell. it from Stephanie Link. This is makes such great sense. Couldn't couldn't agree. Uh, couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, so now, uh, quickly for a rumor here, even though I'm already over time, there is a rumor uh, that the uh, Links have added to their household. <laughs> if you know what I mean, I told you she looks 34. Wait till you hear this. 
We did. We've never had a puppy before. Oh so boy, we got a puppy! I know a mini what Labradoodle. Ca- She's a joy. A mini Labradoodle sounds like a very girly dog. Is it? Is this? It, uh... <laughs> she is a girly dog, but she's a smart one and lots of fun. How lots old? Of work. It's. It, she is four months, and I will say it's like having an, a child. I have a twelve-year-old. It, it brings back memories. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and this, and this, uh, and and the mini Labradoodle. Uh, I can't even do it. Mini Labradoodle is is uh, her name is. Her name is Charlotte, and we call her Charlie. Charlie and Charlie. Uh, I, I like that. Uh, and Charlie, uh, <laughs> Charlie apparently has a real attachment for you because she was watching you on television today. Is that true? She was. She was not in a good mood, and so my nanny turned the TV on, and there I was, and she calmed down and sat and watched. <laughs> and just finally, because I'm really worried about that, please tell me that the nanny really has some responsibility for the 12-year-old and not just Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that... here's the other thing. My 12-year-old just went to sleepaway camp for seven weeks, oh. so mom <laughs> is very sad, and nanny has a little left to do, so she's taking care of the pup. Charlie. Charlie has Charlie has her own nanny. That is so cool. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Stephanie Link, you are so cool. Managing Director, Head of Active uh, Equities Research for TIA Investments, a CNBC contributor, and one of the smartest, best people, and one of my best buddies uh, in the business on Wall Street. Thanks so much for being with us on the Farcast. Anytime. My pleasure. Always a joy. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back covering Washington with Dan Mahaffey when we return. On the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the Farcast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com. Or call me at 202-530-5608. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. What a terrific segment with Stephanie Link. She is absolutely one of my favorite people on Wall Street. So amazingly smart. But, you know, she's wise to. Uh, she really is. She's thoughtful and wise, is able to kind of get right to the point and give you such good, solid advice. Uh, she's what really one of my favorite people on Wall Street. Um, now, on the Farcast, our senior political analyst, Dan Mahaffey, the great Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Uh, he is a senior vice president, um, and he... Uh, is the director, uh, manages their policy programs. He's the director of the Dr. Scholl Foundation, has a master's in security studies with a concentration in U.S. defense policy from Georgetown, B.A. in government with minors in history, and Mandarin Chinese 
from Georgetown, studied in China, has been published all over the place, and uh, so absolutely is an expert's expert, particularly at this really strange time of uh, China trade negotiations. Welcome back to the Farcast, Dan. Michael, good to talk to you. And after uh, last week's conversation about what you said to the Chinese ambassador, I'm just thankful now each week that you're alive. (laughs) It was dicey there for a few weeks after that conversation. And I I, I actually was told by someone that, you know, uh, that was several years ago and and maybe things had simmered down until you did that stupid forecast last week, (laughs) reminded them all of your attitude uh, towards their uh, governing attitudes. So, well, you know. Um, uh, it's and this is a glass enclosed studio here uh, on Wisconsin Avenue. I suppose we have to be careful of those buildings across the street. Dan, you were in Boston today. <laughs> yes, I was just uh, coming back from some weekend travel and some meetings. But you know, always good to you know get out of get outside the Beltway, even if you're still on the East Coast. How were your flights? Did you make it okay? <laughs> Oh, well, you know, infrastructure in America is its usual challenge, but not that our policymakers seem to want to do anything about that. <laughs> well, we're sorry that you're with us remotely tonight and not in this in the studio. But, of course, always glad uh, when you can be with us. Dan, what in this week uh, that was chock-a-block full of various headlines from the Fed, from Capitol Hill, from... Uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi from uh, Mr. President Trump uh, coming up with a G20 meeting. What is it that caught your attention this week and had everybody buzzing down at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress? Well, I think the biggest thing that we've buzzed about is that, look, the uh, where you have the crises that the president has faced, be it trade, be it North Korea, be it all these issues where generally that, uh, you know, he seems to be in control to a certain extent because in, in some instances he's creating uh, the crisis and that's part of his negotiating style. It's part of how he thinks he's getting leverage. But really what we saw with uh, what happened with Iran and the, the discussion of a strike on Iran and, and that he pulled back at the last moment um, certainly not wanting to uh, escalate it further, and you can understand some of his logic there, but finally starting to see the price of all these uh, confrontations that he's uh, brought about on a range of different fronts and a question of, okay, that now that we've done this, do we have the bandwidth to deal with all this, uh, all this tumultuous business at a time when we, we don't have a Secretary of Defense, we don't have a range of other uh, you know, officials who are confirmed. So at what point do you get, uh, you know, the, the risk reward uh, starts to become even riskier simply because we're, we're poking fights that we can't handle? Can we not handle these fights? We won't handle these fights. I heard one, uh, I read one analyst who said the president pulled back because his base uh, really does not want further conflict and certainly military engagement in the Middle East. And even though that happened, there were others who criticized the president for appearing weak, uh, for pulling back after threatening to, they better not because we really will show them. And then he said, well, maybe we won't and we're going to have some more sanctions. How did, uh, one, uh, Dan, do you think the president handled this particular confrontation and dialogue 
properly. And number two, how do you think uh, his, I guess, decision to not attack was viewed by the rest of the world and particularly that region of the Middle East? Well, I think one that, you know, perhaps he got to the right outcome. Uh, when you think through the logic of it, look, the, the Iranians are the ones who have their economy being squeezed, not anyone else. Uh, and certainly while uh, they shot down a, a multi-million dollar piece of American hardware, there was no law life, thank God. Um, and let's continue to put Iran in a situation where they're the ones responsible for the escalation, not the United States. I don't think it was thought through, though, in those terms, or even if they had, uh, you know, gone ahead and just said that to begin with, you know, been consistent in the messaging. And he actually could have uh, stopped a lot of the criticism that he was hot-headed or trying to procure conflict with Iran uh, and really move uh, global opinion and public opinion to say, look, we've been We've been provoked, but we're going to take the, the higher road and calmer road here and work with our allies to, to deal with this Iranian threat. Um, I would say separately, though, in, in some of the conversations and even where I've talked to, uh, did a television appearance on a, on a Middle Eastern news station where it was sort of a local think tank equivalent from one of the Gulf uh, states, I think from Dubai, was on the segment with me. And, and they were just utterly outraged at how Iran has continued to provoke the situation, but the United States hasn't responded. So even if he made the right decision, that failure to communicate why and why this was part would still be part of a broader pressure made it seem to, to many people in, in quick analysis that the Iranians had called this president's bluff. You know, there are certain in our our culture and our society, uh, the 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 president would get, I think, a fair amount of support for saying uh, even 150 lives. I want to be very careful. Other cultures and other societies say, why in God's name would you care? I mean, look what they've done to you. Kill them. Uh, That's not us. But it is a reaction you do hear around the world in these sorts of moments, isn't it? Well, I think that and I think, look, if we're going to look at the calculus of this, I wouldn't blame uh, President Trump as much as I would blame, uh, or, or even as much as I one could blame President Obama. Not that I'm blaming either, but if you really want to look at what's changed the calculus of how we look at the Middle East, it's fracking, yes. not which president we've elected. Um, and you have these Gulf monarchies where we've given them tons of weapons and money over the years, and you know they can't even uh, fight a war in Yemen. But when it comes to Iran, it's you know it sounds like. The, the Saudis and the Emiratis are happy to fight to the last American. Excellent. I mean, yeah, to the last American. Excellent point. Uh, Dan, we are hearing about economic sanctions. Do you have any insights for us about what that really means in Iran, uh, what, what they can't get, how it, their economy is affected? We're hearing things like they can't get uh, medicine. We can't. They, what else can't they get? How uh, hard hitting are these economic sanctions? Is, is life miserable enough that they'll come to the table? Well, I don't think the the question is 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 life miserable enough for the Iranian people. I think the Iranian people themselves have suffered long enough. The question will be with this next round of sanctions, particularly ones that target the leadership, uh, the Ayatollah, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, those elements how much we can actually get these sanctions to affect this entire shadow economy that the leadership and the Revolutionary Guard have. 
that's how they've been able to insulate themselves from the pain that the rest of the Iranian people have felt. Um, but, you know, when when they're believing about it from a, a religious standpoint, I, I question how much uh, the economic pressure will hurt unless you really start to, to make it to the point that they can no longer afford their military hardware. Um, but they're, you know, how long is that going to happen if they continue to get support from Russia and, and China who just want to continue to have that uh, that strategic fly in the ointment for the United States? Is this another country uh, where the elite leadership lives reasonably to very, very well and everybody else pretty much uh doesn't even come close, lives in squalor, and life sucks? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to compare it like that to uh, North Korea, but the leadership does do comfortably well. The, the religious clerics do well, even though they have a, uh, you know, a rather austere life, a uh, clerical life. Um, but even in Iran, what you have, though, is a, a weird dynamic where you have uh, urban dwellers who are very cosmopolitan, international, and, and want to move beyond this period of isolation, and that's why they came out during the uh, some of the uh, rebellions and revolutions that we saw during the Obama administration time. Um, but most of them, actually, in the rural areas, are are dirt poor. But the the effect of the economic deprivation has actually caused them to turn towards religion and more towards the clerics. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying. The isolation has them turning toward. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Two two final points here, because believe it or not, uh, we're out of time. Uh, amazing. I always uh, it always goes so fast when I get to talk to you. Um, uh, so two things. Um, Representative uh, Maxine Waters came out again today, and she really does not want Facebook to pursue uh, this cryptocurrency. Any insights there? She also seemed to get some por- some support from some foreign governments and regulators suggesting that uh, if Facebook moved ahead with this, they thought they needed to be regulated very quickly. And then I just want to ask you about the Jay Powell-President Trump relationship and the temperature of it. And, of course, I've got to do all of this in 30 seconds. So go, Dan. Well, certainly with uh, with Facebook and the Libra currency, I think regulators are going to continue to look at this because it's a, a new technology, but also the fact, and I, I don't think we really emphasized this last time, Facebook is going to change this in a way where it's, it's not just sort of the, the kooks and eccentrics who have had Bitcoin in the past. Like Fred Methel, as you say, are going to now be able to access a cryptocurrency through Facebook if this goes forward. So how does that change the, the regulatory environment and the discussion around that? I think that's important to consider uh, and something that they're considering uh, around the world. Uh, I think with President Trump and the Fed, particularly his relationship with, with Chairman Powell, a lot of pressure to to push rates. I think, particularly to the the cynical angle that we've discussed, is that he wants these rates uh, artificially pushed down before you go into the election season. Um, but how how much longer can we can we separate the the political pressure from the you know the the fiduciary responsibility that the Fed has? And remind ourselves, as much as we want to politicize everything, there are certain things in our society that need to remain above politics so that they're managed well. And the Fed is one of those, too. Greg, Greg Valliere said this morning that he thought that the president would still fire the Fed chairman probably sometime uh, in the early part of 2020. You think it's a possibility? we got to go. I think that's a possibility. I, I hope his advisors say, though, that, you know, firing officials in a, at any time during your presidency, particularly ones like that, 
has uh, has blowback. I think that one would have a lot of blowback, certainly from the markets. Uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and our senior political analyst on the forecast. Thanks so much for being with us again this week. You rock, dude. Good to talk to you as always. Take care. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be right back, and this is going to be a great treat. Uh, Ned Davis from Ned Davis Research, uh, one of the Wall Street all-time greats, is going to honor us with his presence today on the Farcast. We're going to learn a lot. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Farr. You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to The Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast's three-minute morning brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and The Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week in your cars and uh, kitchens and earbuds and offices. It's a privilege to be with you as you're jogging down the trail. And we uh, thank you also for your notes and emails. Uh, And it's nice to hear that you're learning something and that you're enjoying the Farcast. That's terrific. Well, uh, what a great treat. Uh, for our third segment here on the Farcast as we consider the broad investing world. Uh, It is a great honor to have one of the greats of our business. This is a pro's pro, someone I've known and followed for many years. It would be hard for me to tell you that I had much greater respect for anyone else in our business. Ned Davis is the senior investment strategist and founder of Ned Davis Research Group. Uh, He started this company in 1980. He has such a balanced approach to investing and to research, and he takes a long view, and it's largely based on, in many ways, avoiding the big mistakes, uh, taking care of the day-to-day and avoid the big mistakes. He is a uh, used to be on Wall Street Week uh, with Louis Rukeyser years ago. I was just mentioning to Ned that I think that's where I first met him, over in Owings Mills, Maryland. He's a Phi Beta Kappa a uh, member of Phi Beta Kappa and a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You will also notice a uh, little bit of an accent with my friend Ned. Uh, it's it's uh, sophisticated and cultured. It's a slight little southern <coughs> accent there, uh, in, in, in spite of the fact that he uh, also uh, went to Harvard Business School. Welcome to the Farcast, Ned. Well, thank you very much. That was a very nice introduction. Uh, uh, I, I, I mean every, every word of it. It's been a— Appreciate it. Well, man, uh, you, you said something before we came on the air. You've been in this business how long? Started in 1968. Dear God. Uh, you and you were you you were you were uh, the only teenager at the time in the financial services yeah, business. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. I started a company called J.C. Bradford Company, which was a Nashville, Tennessee-based brokerage firm, and and uh, the business come a long way since <laughs> since then. How did you? So uh, let's just tell me about that for a minute. How did you decide uh, on J.C. Bradford, and why? What brought you into the business? And did you start as a stockbroker or research analyst? I started in research, and I had interned there two summers uh, when I was in college. And um, it was I was from Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, I knew some of the partners there and uh, ended up being a partner there. And then uh, 
I sort of wanted to do my own thing. So in, after 12 years, I left and started Ned Davis Research. What a great – and, you know, well, J.C. Bradford's a great company, uh, uh, was a great company. Uh, and um, uh, it, it's been an amazing start. You know that I uh, – I don't know whether we mentioned this when we were having lunch a few months. I went uh, to school in Tennessee. I went to college in Tennessee at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, uh, I know it well. It is, uh, it is a great place. But, you know, not a lot of people end up in our business from Sewanee. Um, they, they go to academia and other places. But uh, i got to tell you, when I was in college, Nashville was a lot of fun. And uh, my wife went to Vanderbilt. So um, I got over to Nashville for lots of fun reasons. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a good city for a long time. But it was very sleepy for a while. And everybody knew everybody. And then it, it just uh, I left there and the city just boomed. <laughs> So, was that know. the cause? Do you think you kind of lit the flame there know. for Nashville? I don't know. Country music may have helped, but it was, uh, yeah, it's really a fun city. Um, Ned, uh, let's take a look at markets and the economy. And we've got stocks. They were a little bit weaker today, but we're still awfully near all-time highs. We have a Fed that's uh, turned suddenly more dovish. Uh, we've got all sorts of stuff going on around the world, conflicts with Iran and China and North Korea. And it seems like everybody else uh, doesn't feel like we get along with anybody else anymore. How do you view the world and the investment landscape and interest rates and yield curve inversions? And are you worried? And what should investors be thinking? There are only 16 questions there. <laughs> well, you know, I, um, I I like to just um, I'm a research driven investor, and I just like to focus on a few areas that I think are, are very important, and uh, you know try to keep the noise. Out. I, I mean, I do have opinions on a lot of things, but I, I really just try to keep the noise out of it as much as possible. And uh, I recall, you know, Warren Buffett was for. Hillary Clinton, and, you know, uh, she lost, and they asked him, well, now what? And he said, well, I'm bullish. They said, well, how can you be bullish? And he said, well, because I don't let politics uh, get involved with my investments. And, right. and so I think that's really the way to, to, to look at it and look at the world. And we, we've we studied crisis events, and all the way back from, uh, you know, uh, you know Kennedy being assassinated to uh, the fall of France to on and you know Russia invaded in Afghanistan and this and that and there is lots of times news will cause a you know a dramatic short-term drop but within six months to a year in almost every case except uh, the only case I can think of where it really didn't work was uh, Lehman Brothers collapsing. But almost every case, there's a short-term correction, and within six, 12 months, the market's higher. Uh, even after 9/11, there was, uh, you know, there, there was a big drop for a week, yes, and then right. six months later, the market was higher. So, so when the, you when you are looking at all of these world events, and instead, and uh, to your point, uh, the market has marched higher in spite of these uh, big headline noisy times. What are the things that you're looking at now that are sort of driving your investment process? And, and kind of what advice would you give to, you know, Fred and Ethel who are at home thinking about their 401ks? What's it take to be an investor when the market's near all-time highs? 
Well, it's, it's, it's difficult at this point because I do think the market's stretched. I mean, we've been going up since 2009 uh, almost nonstop without a major bear market. So that's a long period. And a, a lot of valuation indicators tell me that the market uh, is highly valued. Um, but again, going back, I, I like to watch interest rates in the Fed. And I think the, the, the don't fight the Fed is one of my primary rules. And as you said, the Fed has has turned more uh, bullish here. Even even if they haven't cut, uh, long-term interest rates have come down from, you know, three and a quarter to below 2% today. So yeah, it's amazing. It's really, uh, 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 that's really a big help uh, for the market because bonds compete with stocks. So um, Do you think the uh, markets so have a tailwind here? Excuse me? Do the markets yes, have do. a tailwind? Yeah. I do think they do, yes. And I think we're going higher. Uh, I will say this in, in terms of the Fed. Uh, it, it doesn't always work. Don't fight the Fed. If you're going into a severe recession, uh, then you, you need more than one cut in the Fed. Uh, so you, you have to be careful. And I think, really, I'm a little wary about the economy, and uh, I think it's slowing quite a bit. I don't see a recession yet. But uh, so, yes, when the Fed's uh, easy and friendly, then the market usually goes up. And when the market gets to this point, so I'm, I've been feeling, frankly, the very same way you've been feeling. I feel like stock prices are fairly full uh, you know, 17 times earnings or 17 and a half times earnings, that for the S&P 500, that feels kind of full. And then I kind of, of course, I look at earnings growth because I pay close attention to balance sheets and I want to see earnings growth. And, you know, so 2% GDP growth and then maybe we get 4 or 5% earnings growth. That doesn't get me excited, but it, 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 it you know, beats the hell out of things falling apart. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't strike me as awful. Do you, how do you feel as we look forward over the next 6, 12, 24 months? Are you, uh, you, you, you feeling reasonably optimistic or where are your concerns? And if you were going to stay away from something, what would you stay away from? I think we're fairly late cycle, and uh, therefore, and it just so happens that, you know, I like to follow the tape as well. I don't like to fight the tape, and the tape is into pretty defensive names, uh, groups, utilities, consumer staples. Uh, uh, Health care has done a little bit better, but it seems like every every politician out there wants to, to beat on health care. So uh, but those are the groups I would I would be uh, stay with defensive groups and be a little defensive. This inversion of the yield curve that has been sort of predictive, at least uh, for the last 50 years. I, you know, I don't remember, frankly, Ned, everybody talking about the three-month to 10-year inversion. I always paid attention to the two-year to 10-year inversion. That's, I'm sorry, that's a little wonky uh, for some of our listeners. But, but basically, it's been a fairly consistent indicator. We've got – we don't see – I, I guess I see this 2% going on for a while as long as the government keeps this money flowing Am I wrong? I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what I'm missing uh, here in terms of the dangers lurking. Well, I think there's a couple things. First of all, uh, the, the there's a, a debt bubble out there and it's it's global. So every country really uh, 
has a huge debt load, and this is I think this is really slowing growth. And any interest rate increases, even though they're from very low levels, they, they are, or even cutting off money, uh, just seems to slow uh, growth dramatically. So when you look at our rates and they're two percent, you say, "Oh my gosh!" Historically, that's incredibly right. low. I mean, I remember when they were fifteen percent. Yeah, uh, early in my career, but still, then you look, uh, who's the competition? And you look at Japan, and you're talking zero rates. You look at Germany, you're talking you're paying the government to lend you. Yes, you know, uh, which so is a wild concept, isn't everywhere. it? God. So compared to that, our rates look you know fairly attractive, and I think that that's one of the things that's helped bring down rates. And then again, uh, inflation. Uh, is a big driver of rates, and inflation's been uh, – it did pick up a little bit, but it's it's come off quite a bit. So uh, I think the inflation problem actually is, is a little weaker than the Fed thinks it is, and uh, that's one reason, I think, why they're now thinking about cutting rates. You mentioned a, sort of a global debt bubble. Have you seen uh, in your 51 years this sort – or in your research – this sort of a phenomena debt bubble before? And, and if so, how – how how does this sort of play out? How do you expect this one to play out? Yes, well, I think the main thing uh, about it is you can't say debt is good or bad. It, it really depends. It, it depends on where you are in the very long-term trend and also what the debt's used for. If debt is used, you know, for education and training and you have more productive workers, uh, that, that can be good debt. If it's used for equipment and robots and AI and, you know, even structures, that, that can be very positive. But when debt is just used for consumption, it's really spending the day uh, and you don't have it later. And uh, this is what I'm afraid most of our debt has been in the rundown savings and increased consumption. And uh, therefore, it uh, and you run into another problem debt, you know, again, debt early on when it's low and you're using debt, the government can stimulate the economy. But at some point, debt gets very high and it becomes the economics. Economists like to say the law of diminishing returns. And I think that's because you have to pay back the debt. You have to service the debt. Your credit scores go down when you have too much debt, and and, uh, debt's just a weight around people's neck. So what normally happens is that it slows it slows growth. It, it eats up income and it slows growth. And this is what uh, basically since 2000 or uh, at least 2005 or so, this is what's been dragging uh, our growth down and, and dragging growth down around the world. And, and of course, uh, politicians are trying to fight it and governments, and uh, I can understand it. And, and in Japan, we've seen they've been fighting this for 20 years, and, and their economy's okay. I mean, they're, they're doing okay, but they're not doing great, and they've tried everything. And so I think that's a good, a good roadmap for, you know, the, the kind of thing that excessive debt and, and bubbles will do for you. I asked Larry Lindsay if he thought we were becoming Japan. Um, uh, I'll ask you the same thing. Do you think we're becoming Japan? I'll tell you what, Larry looked at me and he said, I think you're an optimist if you think we're going to be able to get away with just being Japan. <laughs> 
Well, I think Japan does have uh, – it has certain characteristics that make it more favorable than the United States. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the nice things about having Japan in 1989 top out and start down is we learned some lessons. And so, you know, uh, maybe we didn't let it go on as long as uh, as Japan has without taking some action. But, yes, I, I basically feel like it's, it's a similar type situation. Mm. Well, as we, I can't believe it, but we're already out of time. It is so wonderful to hear your thoughts. I've learned so much uh, tonight. Any parting words for investors before we go? Well, again, you know, my rules are to try not to fight the Fed and, and try not to fight the tape. And I think, you know, most most of the time, if you, you follow those two rules, then uh, you'll you'll avoid the the disastrous mistakes and uh, you, you make money in the long run. And stocks, uh, you can take any investment you want, houses, bonds, you know, go down the list and stocks have outperformed in the very long run. So it's just a, a matter of uh, you want to be in the stock market, but you want to avoid those big mistakes. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend Ned Davis, senior investment strategist, founder of Ned Davis Research. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the greatest voices and minds on Wall Street for over 50 years. He's been calming people. He anchors them. When you hear Ned Davis tell you what he thinks and you find yourself nodding your head, I'm going to tell you you should. Ned Davis, thanks so much for being on the Farcast. It's been a great honor and privilege. Good. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us on another Farcast. We'll be back again next week with you. Another lineup of great guests, and we appreciate those notes and emails. We appreciate you listening for another Farcast in Washington, D.C., from the Chatter Glass Enclosed Studios with my friends Eric and Harry Jennings. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to tonight's Farcast. Every week we talk with insiders and experts to bring you insights into the forces shaping our world. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy making the show for you. We'd like to remind you that if you think you have heard a recommendation to buy or sell any security on the show tonight, you haven't. The Farcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you speak with an investment professional. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please give us a call at 202-530-5600 or email us at invest at farmiller.com and one of our investment professionals will be glad to help. Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and our production engineer is Claude Jennings. We are coming to you tonight from our home, Tony Kornheiser studio at Chatter Restaurant in Friendship Heights, Washington, D.C. We love getting your notes and you can email us at farcast at farmiller.com. We're now planning our summer schedule and look to bring you more insights into the markets, finance, and the broader economic landscape. It's the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.